I mentioned last Sunday that verses 10 to 12 of chapter 6 of Ecclesiastes are viewed by many people to be the turning point in the book. The verses fall literally, virtually, at the midpoint of Ecclesiastes. But the preacher, Koheleth, our writer, is still saying some of the same things that he said at the very beginning of his book. If he said it once, he has said it a dozen times. There is nothing new under the sun. Look again at chapter 6, verse 10, if you have your little copy of Ecclesiastes in front of you. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it's known what man is, and that he's not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The meaning behind the, and the emphasis of giving something a name is to study, or as here, to appoint its character. But the world, what is, and man have settled characters. And the one who is stronger is obviously a reference to God. And so Solomon is underlining the impossibility of changing the basic character of life. We cannot escape our limitations. Nor can we completely unravel the world's inconsistencies. All we can do at times is the same thing that Job wanted. Just to be able to discuss the matter with God. Uh, But God is altogether greater. Words cannot change the world. How many of you have heard over and over again through your lives, uh, a rose by any other name is still a rose. However, our words may add to the futility of the situation and may certainly add to other people's pain. So far, as far as I know, this hasn't happened with my great nephew Jared. But I know of another case where somebody was struggling with an illness and somebody came in meaning well but theologically dead wrong and said, well, obviously there's something that is just not right with God that you need to get straightened out. Just adding to their pain. And so Solomon, uh, though he's previously asked uh, the question, who appreciates man's life as it goes beyond death? Now he asks, who's able to point out what will truly satisfy as a basis of life? What is needed is something which will be adequate for every day, according to the number of the days, in his words, which will be lifelong and and not merely passing, but something with which we can cope with the inherent futility of life in the earthly realm when viewed from the perspective of life under the sun. And so we actually face a double problem. There is the problem that we who are human really have no wisdom in ourselves. That's why Solomon says, who knows? And secondly, the other side of the problem is is it's not easy to find somebody who can help. Who can tell, he says. The commentator 
Kidner puts it, viewed from the perspective of life under the sun, the earthly perspective, we are left with no absolute values to live for, what is good, not even any practical certainties to plan for what will be. That is when we are viewing life not as a Christian, not with a perspective of God, but when we are just viewing life without any understanding of God. No absolute values. And you read that, you see it, you hear it all the time. Well, you know, what's good for you might not be good for me, and what's good for me might not be good for you. We just need to all get along. Well, there is that which is right and that which is wrong. In fact, Kidner goes on to point out that rather than ending the point at the book at this point with an argument, actually what Solomon does is he closes with a couple of rhetorical questions. Who knows what's good for man while he lives his days under the sun? That he passes like a shadow. And who can tell man what will be after him? Now I don't think it's necessary this morning to spend any time demonstrating that one of the major problems burdening many people has to do with the fact that they are pursuing an elusive idea of happiness. We feel that what we see on Instagram or Pinterest or even Pictogram, uh, that those things give us a snapshot of what happiness really is. But if you want to get a real picture of something, don't you need to see multiple photographs? Have you ever seen one of those pictures that it looked like somebody had a halo over their head, but then when the person moved over a little bit and took another picture, you realized that it was a light of some kind behind them? We need multiple pictures. Sin creates an illusion. Man, I don't know any way better to, to demonstrate that by the kind of filters that you see on Facebook. Have you ever seen some of those filters that people put on themselves? I mean, with a filter, you can take somebody that's really not all that good looking and it's like, wow, who's that? Oh, that's who that is. Or you can do goofy faces or all kinds of things. I always tell my wife, if you're taking a picture of me, it better not show up with a filter on Facebook. <laughs> Somehow, Adam and Eve's first sin back in the garden, chapter 3, verse 5, that was kind of the first photoshopping of, our, of the world. The first filter placed over the truth. Because the serpent, as shrewd as he is, convinced them that the real reason that God had placed limits on them was because if they ate the fruit, they'd be able to see the world as God saw it. They would know good from evil. Listen to me. The truth of the matter is that when they ate the fruit, their view of the world did change. Because when sin enters the picture, innocence gives way to illusion. I don't know how many times I have had men or young women or ladies say to me, 
man, I, I know this is this is the person. This is Mr. Wonderful or Mrs. Wonderful. Only to find them weeks or months later totally devastated and heartbroken. Sin puts a filter. And we don't even we don't see the reality for what it is. We start chasing what isn't there. And we look for love in all the wrong places. Now here's the problem. When we start pursuing this illusion, we turn away from God. And issues of comparison, contentment, compromise, starting entering into the picture. When we compare ourselves to others, we develop an inappropriate view of ourselves. I'm sure you all have seen this at one point or another. But when we point our finger, there's three pointing back at us. But our thumb is what's really pointing to what the real standard should be. Not them that we think we might be better than, but the real standard is the truth that comes from God. So we develop inappropriate views of ourselves. Our picture is no longer based on the true standard. Uh, We either have too grandiose of a view of ourselves... I guarantee you, you don't have to raise a hand, but everybody can think of somebody right now who just thinks they're a whole lot better than they really are. Or, we also become discontented with ourselves when in many ways we don't need to be. That's when we start to compromise in order to become the illusion that we are chasing, which is really a chasing after the wind. One problem with comparison is that we begin to compare what we have with what others have. And we want what someone else has. Like Cain did in Genesis 4. We spend so long trying to measure up, becoming consumed with being in someone else's world, that we'll do anything to find that happiness. Compromising our values and our beliefs in the process. And I think you know the story. But in the end... What happened? What did Cain do? He was so consumed with comparing himself to his brother that he murdered his brother. And yet, we all understand that comparison can be helpful at times. A helpful means for helping us to evaluate something. When purchasing something, we compare the products and the prices with another product and the price of it. Even Shakespeare Use comparison. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? And in our text for today, Solomon uses comparisons to demonstrate some things that are actually better than others. But there's a second problem that we have to recognize before we move on. And that is the complexity of the cosmetic. Now, my visual portrays just some of the complexity involved in the making of cosmetics themselves. And I use this only as an illustration. But just in terms of what people put on their faces 
And, and this has come home to us because, because of some different allergy issues and all. Autumn has had to be looking carefully at the ingredients in some of the, the cosmetics that she uses. Uh, there are issues of relating to texture and appearance and the range of issues regarding active ingredients, not to mention the issues of preservation, uh, those magic creams that make us look younger and keep us looking younger. Let me tell you, it's just being Indian. Uh, that's a big one. Uh, there's something about my distant relatives uh, and our oily skin that, that keeps it, us from aging in many ways and not me as much as even some more on my mom's side who, who have more of that in them. I have a little bit more of my dad in me. But, but sun protection, all kinds of complex issues go into making cosmetics. But there's another aspect regarding the complexity of cosmetics and that is the range of issues regarding the disparity between the real and the way things appear to be. The relationship between the inner self and the outer appearance. Real change versus superficial cosmetic change. In his commentary, Derek Tidball shares the incredible story of a young girl by the name of Sharon Wood. She was a child that was born with gross facial deformity. And by gross, I mean not ugly gross, but uh, very obvious, extensive. There were bony protrusions on her face and scalp. Because of of deformity, her eyes were separated more than normal. And so when she was eight years old, they did a nine-hour extensive surgery, removing those bony spurs, cutting down the center a piece out, and bringing her skull together, bringing her eyes and all back into shape, using a bone from her leg to help form a new nose. And... uh, just to help her so she wouldn't have to deal with all of the stigma of having those bony lumps and, and the meanness that can happen, especially in childhood. Now, Tyndale points out that for most of us, the quest to improve our appearance is not that dramatic. And yet, here's the, here's the problem. How much do we spend on cosmetics and cosmetic changes, plastic surgery when the change is only skin deep. The change is only superficial, even artificial. For we ourselves haven't changed at all. We even use the word cosmetic in precisely that way. Talking about a a change that is all show and not real. So what about another approach. What about bringing about the changes on the inside and letting them work towards the outside? About hmm, a year and a half ago, my wife and I discussed the options of having a surgical procedure to help me lose weight. I was more than 100 pounds overweight which is considered gross obesity. And so I would have qualified. And we talked about it and talked about all the potential side effects and everything. 
And I made the decision at that point not to do that. And so I went on continuing to be heavy. But last August, when I looked across the table at my daughter, and she was 19, I said, she deserves to have a daddy around for a while. I didn't change my diet. I just changed my lifestyle. I started pushing away from the table when I felt satisfied instead of cleaning everybody's plates. How many of you dads have been there? Here. They didn't finish this. Okay, I'll finish it for them. Not eating after 5.30 or 6 at night. Just little changes in lifestyle. Big change, as you're aware of, getting out every day and walking. And let me tell you, it can become an addiction. We went out last night and because of the storms, uh, our meal got delayed. And then we went to the store and we didn't get home till 9 o'clock. And my daughter said, what's Dad doing? I heard her in the other room. And my wife said, he's changing into his walking gear. And at 9 o'clock, I put my light on my head and I went out and did three and a half miles. Uh, And you know what? I really didn't want to. But I didn't want to not want to. Now, in our text today, actually, chapter 7 and next week, chapter 8, Solomon discusses the importance of wisdom in life. You know, the word wisdom is found 14 times in these two chapters. That should be a clue that it's something important. And he answers that question of chapter 6, verse 12, who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? And he concluded that though wisdom cannot explain all of life's mysteries, it can make some positive contributions to our lives. So, the first of those, the first interchange that will affect our lives has to do with learning the importance of valuing the tough side of life. Let's look at verses 1-6. to six. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind. And the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of the face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pod, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Valuing the tough side of life. By the way, in line with the emphasis on comparisons, better is a key word in this chapter. Solomon uses the word better at least 11 times. And his listeners must have been shocked when they heard Solomon describe the better things that come to the life of a person who follows God's wisdom because his own example was that of a man who strayed. He strayed as a result of a poor marriage choice. 
I, I use Solomon as an example when young people are talking about finding a, a mate who is outside of Christianity and, and saying, well, you know, I think they can change or this or that. Solomon married somebody who wasn't of the Jewish faith, the Jewish belief. And instead of him converting her, he started worshiping her pagan gods. So behind verses 1-4 to is the belief that sorrow is better than laughter. If given the choice though, I think most people would rather go to a birthday party than to a funeral. But Solomon is actually advising against it. Why? Because sorrow can actually do more good for the heart than laughter. And his emphasis on the heart is important. He uses it four times just in these four verses. He was certainly not a morose man living a gloomy lifestyle because in Proverbs chapter 15, he says, a glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of heart, the spirit is crushed. And again in verse 15, all the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. So what is it that he's saying But with these verses? Yes, laughter can be like medicine that heals the broken heart. But, listen to me, sorrow can be like nourishing food that strengthens the inner person. How many times have we gone through a period of sorrow and grief and have learned an important lesson in the process? That's what Solomon's saying. You see, it takes both sides for a balanced life. Have you ever heard all rain and no sunshine produces a flood? But all sunshine and no rain produces a desert? You have to have a balance in life. <laughs> Building campfires out of the camps helped me compare so helped me understand Solomon's comparison here of the praise of fools to the burning thorns of a campfire. Man, you can get a lot of those really small sticks that are dry. And you can get a tremendous quick blast of flame. But if you don't get some bigger logs that are also dry and get them started, you're not going to have the heat that lasts very long to have a good campfire. You need not the flattery of fools, but you need that good solid rebuke from the wise person. The second advice he gives is that we need to avoid the traps, the tripwires of life. Look at verses 7 to 10. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not be quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Once again, the text, Solomon, 
is returning to a, a discussion of politics. Because for Solomon and his listeners, extortion and bribery were and continue to be political matters. But it's not simply a reflection on political matters in and of themselves. It's also a reflection on how the wise person confronts political reality. And so there in verse 7 is really a confirmation of, of the saying that we often hear. Everyone has his price. Solomon points out that extortion actually makes a wise person into a fool precisely because it shows how their advice is wrong or else they wouldn't have had to have used extortion. And when people see how pervasive abuse of political power is, that is indeed so common that it seems to be impossible to function in politics without being tainted, they conclude that the words of the wise are hopelessly idealistic. And so they smirk and laugh at wisdom. And bribery also undoes the work of wisdom in that it corrupts the heart. Nevertheless, the final verdict is an end. And people prematurely conclude that warnings to avoid corruption are naive. We have to avoid the trap, the tripwire of impatience. And that was a tough one for me to read and, and think about and prepare to deliver to you. Because I do not do well with patience. I want things yesterday instead of now. I mean, it's really at times that bad. I don't know what it was this week, but either my wife or daughter said, you're really not a very patient person, are you? And I'm not. If one is patient, one will finally see that moral integrity is indeed the better way. That's what he's saying in verse 8. At the same time, to allow ourselves to be controlled by the tripwire of anger, to be vexed and grief-stricken over even corruption in the world. Solomon says that's also foolish. The wise person is neither naive nor cynical and embittered. So verse 10 is a sort of a transition. It does pick up on the previous text, but it also says that it's pointless to allow uh, the trap of nostalgia to reel us in. To look back on the quote-unquote good old days when corruption was not so common. But you realize, I hope, the good old days never really existed. Yes, I can remember when 20 gas was 27 cents a gallon. There are a few of you that can remember when it was cheaper than that. Most of you cannot. But I can tell you this, when gas was 27 cents a gallon, I could not afford to fill my tank. I don't like gas being over $3 a gallon. And when some people complain about the price of the gas, I ask them a few pointed questions about the current situation. But, I can pull up to the tank, the gas pump, and I can fill my tank. Okay? The good old days aren't always as good as what they seemed like. 
At the same time, the verse anticipates the next passage, which deals with economic cycles. And it's foolish for us to long for days of prosperity. Apart from the fact that such longing doesn't do anyone any good, every period has its hardships and its opportunities. And so we need to work hard to avoid the many traps that we're going to encounter. The third advice that he gives is that we need to treasure the thought-provoking experiences of life. Verses 11 to 18. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. One of the marks of maturity is the ability to look at life in perspective and not get out of balance. When you have God's wisdom, you'll be able to accept and deal with the changing experiences of life. Did you sing that song that I sang when we were little? Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I might as well eat worms. Big ones. I won't go into it. Here's the reality. If nobody liked you or cared about you, They wouldn't sell you groceries. They wouldn't sell you gas. They wouldn't do anything for you of a positive nature. We have to look at both sides of things. And yes, wisdom is better than a generous inheritance. Money can lose its value. Be stolen. But wisdom keeps its value and cannot be lost unless you become fools and abandon it deliberately. I used to say to my kids all the time in school, the only thing someone cannot take from you is what you put inside your head. Wisdom is like a shelter to those who obey it. It gives protection. Most of you probably are familiar with the serenity prayer. I don't know if you know it, but it was written by uh, one of my mentors, professors. Uh, It was written in 1934 by Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, Glenn Stassen, who was my supervisor in my postgraduate studies, uh, studied under the Niebuhrs. Uh, A verse that 
basically is used around the world uh, by people in various support groups. Oh God, give us serenity to accept what we cannot change, courage to change what should be changed, and wisdom to distinguish from one from the other. Verses 13 to 18 of this seventh chapter are a life lesson demonstrating that wisdom also gives us perspective so that we aren't discouraged when times are difficult or we aren't arrogant when things are going well. It takes a good deal of spirituality to be able to accept prosperity as well as adversity. For often prosperity does more damage. Paul writes about that in Philippians chapter 4. So many people ask the question, why does God constitute our lives in this way? Where there are enough blessings to keep us happy and yet enough burdens to keep us humble. And Solomon says basically there are two facts that be to be noted. Yes, God does promise to Israel to bless them if they obey His law. But He has not given those same promises to believers today. I'm sorry. The wealth and prosperity preachers are not biblical. God does not promise in the New Testament that you will be materially and financially blessed. In fact, the opposite is true. What the New Testament teaches is that if we are living the Christian life the way we are called to live the Christian life, we are going to face adversity and persecution. Francis Bacon, way back in the late 1500s and early 1600s, wrote, Prosperity is the blessing of the Old Testament. Adversity is the blessing of the New Testament. Second, Solomon says that the wicked appear to prosper only if you take a short view of things. That was the lesson of Asaph recorded in Psalm 73. When you go home, read Psalm 73. Paul reinforced it in Romans and 2 Corinthians. That when we look at the, the big picture of the thing, and verse 18 of chapter 7 provides a balance. We should take hold of true righteousness and not withdraw from true wisdom. Uh, he's not saying don't be righteous. What he's saying is don't be righteous in a superficial way. Listen. If I come to the end of my life and there is nothing beyond the grave, I have lost nothing by trying to live in obedience to what God says in His Word. I have a loving wife. I've been blessed in terms of loving and successful children who are not struggling in one way or another. Uh, some are, and we love them just as much. And, and, uh, but God is good. But what if I get to the end of the life and there really is a judgment which I believe there's going to be? What have I lost if I haven't lived according to God's Word? Everything. 
And so it is that we're further encouraged to live life in such a way that we actually embrace what Derek Tidbell identified as the taunting side of life. I'm just going to read an excerpt, uh, verses 23 to 25, in the first verse of, of chapter 8. All this I've tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? So here's a question. If the advantages of wisdom are so great and so obvious, which they are, why don't we all pursue it with all of our strength? And again, I believe here that we find that Ecclesiastes actually never leaves reality very far behind. Having extolled the virtues of wisdom, the text reminds us uh, that we need to return to the world in which we live and in which wisdom is in, in fact hard to find. Don't imagine, he says, that if you want to live wisely, you're going to get a lot of help. You're not. You won't be popular. You won't even be in the majority. There will be a few around to encourage you, but don't let that throw you off course. Be prepared for the taunts that you will receive. Somewhat depressingly, Solomon comments on what he's seen. And his, his explanation follows two major themes. One, that righteousness really is elusive. But secondly, and more significantly, Solomon is concerned about why righteousness is so scarce. But he realizes that the fault doesn't lie with God. He made mankind upright in the first place. Rather, the responsibility lies with us. It's our restlessness. It's our scheming. It's our search for novelty. It's our waywardness that have caused the problem. So far from being content with what God offered, we as humanity, we've gone our own way. Seeking out our own ways to be happy. But here is the hope. The New Testament declares that wisdom is no longer as elusive as it once was. With the coming of Jesus, God has brought wisdom close to us. In fact, Paul says to the early Christians, you are in Jesus Christ who has become for us wisdom from God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. You see, God realized our predicament. And He gave us a solution, one planned before the beginning of earthly time. And we don't have it within us to be wise ourselves. In fact, there is an inbuilt, inbuilt bias towards foolishness. And I, I think in some people I know, that's a, a pretty strong force. They don't have to work very hard at being foolish. Uh, but we can be wise and have wisdom through faith in Christ. And we need to accept His forgiveness for our foolishness. 
Forgiveness that frees us from the follies of the past. We need to make Him our Lord. Listen to me, because I'm going to emphasize that. One of my biggest concerns, one of my biggest struggles, one of the things that I'm going to be confronted with often as the manager of a church meeting are people who are so focused on conversions and numbers that they're not focused on making disciples. I have to admit, I have baptized some people. Baptisms that I wasn't really sure were for the right reason. And it became obvious very quickly that they went down into the baptistry dry centers and they came up out of the baptistry wet centers. Because they weren't at a point where they were willing to say, I am ready for this person to die and allow Christ to live in and through me. No longer me, myself, and I, the holy untrinity, the unholy trinity, but Christ living in me. We're not capable of ourselves, but we are able to receive what we're not capable of doing from Christ. And so let me close with the words that Paul has writ- written in 1 Corinthians 1, 18-31. Because you see, uh, the wisdom of God is a wisdom that appears foolish to the world. Here's what Paul writes. I thought I had the text. I guess I'll just have to read it for you. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it's written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Listen to me. You can fill your mind with all kinds of junk. You can read, read, read. But if you're not reading the right thing, all it's going to be in your life is garbage in and garbage out. Just like the principle of computers. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Let me tell you the lesson that I have learned this past year. 
for my son. He read a couple years ago a book called Cruciformity. He said, Dad, you need to read this book. So I did. It has to do with the idea that you and I should be doing everything we can possibly do to shape our lives, to form our lives around the pattern of the cross. In other words, not worried about what I'm getting, what's coming to me, how people are treating me, but concerned about how we are sacrificing for others. How we are giving to those in need. How we are coming to the position as Jesus did, even on the cross, where He could say to the people right at the foot of the cross who were mocking Him, calling Him names, spitting on Him, cursing Him, Father, forgive them, for they really don't know what they're doing. But we get so wrapped up in how we're being treated with the unholy trinity of me and myself and I that we allow ourselves to become in despair instead of enjoying the abundance God has for us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for these words of wisdom from Solomon. Help us as we start trying to accept the tough things in life. As we start trying to accept those things that are puzzling. And as we strive with all that we can to live and to walk in that respectful awe, that fear of being obedient to Your Word. We pray this in the name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen.